small businesses create two out of every three net new jobs in this country. Well, that's my guest today. That's Amy Cortese. She's the author of a new book, Loca Vesting, The Revolution in Local Investing and How to Profit from It. And I'm your host, Frank Peters, and you're listening to CDM Cyclist. Thanks for joining me once again. And a special thank you if you've joined the show from coronadelmartoday.com. Welcome. I like the way I was introduced to this book. Uh, My bicycle riding buddy, Alan Crawford in Long Beach. He's on the board of Bikeable Communities. I was eager to run out and get a copy. He intrigued me. Frank, this implies that we should be investing in local bike shops. Well, I wasn't sure. And anyway, it was an idea that came in out of the blue for me. I knew I wanted to get a physical copy of the book, not just download it on my Kindle, but it took me a day or two to get up to the bookstore. So I did download it and I started reading it. And I've told many people, Locavesting, it makes my head hurt. The concepts in Amy's book really, well, they've had quite an impact on me. Just how do our local communities benefit? Are banks lending to small businesses in sufficient numbers? I get the sense the answer is no. Bike shops, maybe they're too small to be focusing on this concept. But the whole concept of building vibrant communities that employ our neighbors really struck a nerve with me. Amy's book, she's got many vignettes of small business looking to expand and encountering challenges with traditional sources like banks. And the challenges they face as they try to raise money from customers, uh, friends of the business. That's how she lures you into her stories. Some of her concepts are about You can't have a strong national economy unless you have a strong local economy. Many of these resonated with me. I'd like to share her thoughts with you. Let's listen. Frank. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Hi, very good. Nice to hear your voice. Yours too. Can you hear me okay? I've got the uh, earplugs in today. Yeah, thank you. That'll make a difference. Thank you very much. Sure. By the way, I watched your TEDx program, and I enjoyed it very much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate you adding the, I enjoyed it very much. You know, 99% of the people who comment on my TED show just say, I watched your TED talk. And, and the implication is, well, did you like it? Or <laughs> they leave no, that hanging. You have a fascinating background. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This show is uh, my latest creative outlet, you can tell. Uh-huh. And I've been doing this for, uh, I think I'm running right up on my sixth anniversary doing it. Wow. So I uh, enjoy it and have attracted uh, a nice audience. And I've been very excited to get you on the show, so let's get started. Okay. Amy, one of my good friends, one of my bicycle buddies here in... Long Beach, California, first told me about your book, Alan Crawford, and he put it to me in the form of a question, Frank, should we be investing in local bike shops 
Is that the whole point of loca vesting? Well, I hadn't heard of your book, so I had to run out and get it to answer his question. How close was he with that little one-liner? Well, first of all, my thanks to Alan for recommending it. Um, Well, I mean, that's certainly part of it. Um, And I know you're a biking enthusiast, um, so investing in a local bike shop might be something that's right up your alley. Um, But one thing I do want to clear up, because there's often a misperception um, among people when they hear about local investing and investing locally, they think about a mom-and-pop shop. So a bike shop, the hardware store, the flower shop, the dry cleaner. And those sorts of companies are certainly what we think about when we think about the quintessential uh, local company. But they can also be bigger companies that employ hundreds of people, that have a strong track record. The differentiation that I make is that they're locally owned and locally based. So they have a stake in the community and you get all the follow-on benefits that, that flow from that. Well, I like your answer because Alan, the implication of Alan's comment was just a little bit too small business for an angel investor. So locavesting, the book brings to mind, uh, is the term locavore, eating locally? Is that the play on words there a little bit? You got it. Yeah, it also flows from that that local food movement and the locavore movement. So if locavores eat a diet sourced close to home, this is investing that way. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of the early activities sort of sprung from uh, the food and agriculture areas where people were trying to rebuild their local food systems. When you think about small businesses... If small businesses in general have a hard time raising capital, well, that's doubly hard, uh, I would say, for anyone involved in farming or food production or even restaurants. Yeah, that I can imagine that the, that's the case. Now, I come from the world of angel investing, of course, and we're just always uh, so fascinated with you know high-tech startups, and that's what we're all looking to find. And occasionally, those pay off for us in a big way. Venture capital has had a tough decade. The returns just haven't been there. And when venture capital catches a cold, angel investors catch pneumonia. So these high-tech investments aren't panning out. Locavesting offers opportunities, you think, for uh, angel investors? Um, I do think so, yeah. On the one hand, um, it's a way to diversify your portfolio and sort of get away from these investments that are just buffeted on an increasingly frequent basis by global macroeconomic um, events, whether it's an earthquake in Japan taking out a supplier or, you know, a sovereign country defaulting on its debt. I mean... The market and a lot of um, private investments even are more and more caught up in this, you know, macro global whirlwind. And I think there's a class of local investments that, you know, especially if, if they have a very localized business model, they're buffered from some of that. They also um, provide some protection from things like rising oil prices. So as we, you know, head deeper and deeper into this age of peak oil and scarce resources, I think some of these companies um, actually offer some protection and, you might say, a better business model for the future. Mm -hmm. 
Now, unemployment's a huge issue. Uh, you know, as I look around the Los Angeles area, maybe just for shock value, I tell my friends, I sense the unemployment uh, percentage is closer to 20%. Big companies are laying off. Uh, it's small business where jobs are being created. You sense that too? Oh, yeah, more than sense. I mean, it's it's a fact that... Uh, small businesses create two out of every three net new jobs in this country. And in fact, multinationals are net job destroyers. So they are eliminating more jobs than they're creating. Um, So I think if we do want to grow the economy, uh, you know, solve this jobs crisis and start rebuilding an economy that's been hollowed out by decades of globalization and outsourcing and, and all of that, I think we need to start by supporting small businesses that are the true job creators and actually contribute so much more to their local economies and, in fact, the national economy than you can argue uh, some of our, our biggest companies do. Mm-hmm. You you spend some of the early chapters taking Wall Street to task, and it's a you do it from a different perspective. What's the story there, Amy, the too-big-to-fail crowd? Uh, yeah, well, where to begin? Um, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think a lot of people were uh, disappointed, to put it mildly, with, with the bailout of these banks that really led us to the brink. And the worst of the fallout has been on people who had, you know, nothing or very little to do with it. Um, so I think there's a lot of um, anger there in this you know, sense that there's sort of two economies, the Wall Street economy, which is doing fine, Bank of America layoffs aside, um, and the Main Street economy. Um, but, but I think really what I was trying to get at is to show how our financial system has changed so much over the years. I mean, you think of the idea of the stock market was the original idea is to productively allocate capital uh, to its well, to its most productive use, right? We're not really doing that anymore. Um, it's all about trading and speculation and high frequency trading and derivatives. And of all the money sloshing around, in I call the stock, it gaming the system. It's gaming the system, yeah. yeah. And of all the money sloshing around in the stock market, just one percent actually goes to productive use. And by that, I mean you know raising money for companies through through um, initial or secondary public offerings. Um, so the rest of it is going to trading and speculation. Um, so our markets are global and efficient, but I don't think they're doing a terribly great job of allocating capital. Mm-hmm. You make a point in the book, of course, many of us have are familiar with the argument, the whole concept of angel investors, to be an investor in small business, you have to be an accredited investor, according to the SEC guidelines there, which locks out a lot of people. What was your argument against that? Well, it's first and foremost an observation. I mean, I think the um, securities uh, regulations that were put into place in the 1930s Um, did a good job for some time. Um, They were intended to protect investors from unnecessary risk, um, you know, in the wake of the stock market crash of 1929. But, I mean, these Depression-era laws are a little outdated now, and they have the effect of cutting off 
a huge potential pool of capital for a lot of small businesses. So as you mentioned, if you're an accredited investor, you have a lot of flexibility. You can invest in private equity, um, you know, private companies, venture capital, hedge funds, you name it. But for the bulk of American investors who, you know, do not have a net worth of a million or, you know, whatever the other um, uh, benchmarks are, they're, um, they're pretty much stuck with investing in publicly traded companies, the stocks and bonds of publicly traded companies, and, of course, the government. And I just I see some irony in that these days, in that, you know, in order to protect investors, we're forcing them to play in the stock market. And I don't know anyone who feels safe in the stock market these days. So you have two things going on. I don't think individual investors are being served very well. And I don't think small businesses are being served very well or are being able to raise the capital that they need to grow and expand and create jobs. You know, I wrote software for Wall Street. That's how I made my money. That's how I became an angel investor. And it was a lot of fun. And I often look back with some nostalgia at the, what Wall Street was like then. I did a lot of trading myself. But then with some of these economic downturns, I've just increasingly felt exactly as you described that I'm just too small potatoes to play in that game. That, But the deck is stacked against me, I feel. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. I mean, you even hear that from Wall Street professionals themselves yeah. saying so. Um, and it's really become an extractive industry. You know, they're taking fees, they're extracting, but I don't see where there's that much value being added. Mm-hmm. You start off in some of the early chapters, you tell some charming stories about small companies attempting to sell shares directly to loyal customers. But that's not easy for them to do, is it? Uh, No. I mean, we talk about the two classes of investors, but the burden is really on the small company. If they don't want to go through the expense of going public, and for many of them that's just out of the question, then they're really limited in um, how much they can do in terms of reaching out to Uh, the public, which includes their customers and some of their biggest supporters and their community. So they often have to walk a fine line. That said, there are exemptions that have been carved out over the years, and they can do that, but it's just so tricky and complex, um, even for lawyers. You know, a lot of lawyers don't even understand some of these exemptions. So your average small business is just not even going to go there because it's, it's too much trouble. So there, as I said, there are ways to do this. What we don't have are established models to let people invest this way, and by that I mean invest locally, in a mainstream way. I, I, I think those models are beginning to be created, and that's sort of why I wrote the book, to illuminate and tell the stories of some of these people that are creating ways um, to let investors invest once again in their local companies. Well, as I listen to you speak there, Amy, my mind drifts a little bit. My buddy John Houston, he's the past chairman of Angel Capital Association, and he runs the Ohio Tech Angels. And uh, a a different book, but I lent him a book once uh, on a, a flight home from Europe, and he handed it back to me at the end of the flight and said, Frank, I'm going to get my own copy. This book makes my head hurt. 
And since then, uh, that's how I felt about locavesting. I, I read a few pages. It makes my head hurt. It stimulates a lot of thinking, gives me, you know, ideas for investing in different directions. Probably a left-hand compliment, huh? Your book. <laughs> it's a little bit of fun, but I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, I do try and balance it. The, the beginning is, you know, and I have friends who work on Wall Street, and, you know, I think maybe the first few chapters are a little tough um, on on Wall Street and our, our current system, but the bulk of the book really is... Um, optimistic, it's positive, it's telling stories about how people are getting this done. You know, I use the phrase, it's like a a vast experiment in citizen finance. I mean, these are people creating alternatives to Wall Street. And that's not to say Wall Street will go away or should go away, but let's have some alternatives, you know, and it's it should be an empowering message that we can do this in our own communities. And by the way, you can't have a strong national or global economy without strong local economies. Well, that's a point that you make repeatedly in the book, and it's so simple to say, isn't it? That's a that's one of those head hurt moments because it's just rings so true. And there's uh, one part in the book I I don't know you'd put it this way, but I wrote it down as the case against big box stores. I've always had a sense that big box stores, you know, uh, were bad for the local community. But you come in and you nail that down in a pretty tight argument. What's the case against big box stores? Well, they come in promising lots of jobs and tax revenues, and they typically, you know, don't live up to that. And what happens is that in order to come in, I mean, the, the, the traditional model of economic development lately has been for states and municipalities to just give giant subsidies to these right. big boxes to, right. to lure them in. And by the way, they're luring them away from another neighboring community. So it sets up this competition among... A zero-sum game. Yes. It's a zero-sum game, and in the end, the, the jobs are never as much as was promised. They're low-wage jobs. And often, some of those workers, they're working part-time. They end up being the ones that are on, um, you know, state health care assistance and things like that. So it's a drain on the taxpayers. And you've already, you know, as a taxpayer put so much into luring this company in and you, I, mm-hmm. I just don't think it, it, it adds up to all that it's promised and I think that economic developers and state planners are beginning to realize that. I, I've heard that from a lot of them. It seems like it's a fad or a phase and maybe we're coming out of it. But one of your points you make is how much of the money involved in a retail transaction stays in the community and it's much lower for the big box stores. Yeah, and that's a really stunning statistic. So um, that's something called the local multiplier effect. So for every dollar spent at a locally owned company, it generates three times more local economic impact than the same dollar that would be spent at a corporate peer. So a you know a corporate chain or something, and that's pretty stunning. And that. The reason for that is that more money stays local. Um, so if it's a locally owned company, they're spending locally. They tend to hire more locally. Um, you know, the money circulates and stays in the economy rather than getting sucked out to a distant headquarters. Right. One of the things uh, that 
One of the reasons why I wanted to go after big box stores here is they create uh, transportation nightmares to the bicycle advocate in me. <laughs> I'm just starting to uh, it's kind of how my bicycle advocacy uh, has kind of morphed into different directions. I love reading up on transportation planning and these big box stores, of course, or giant parking lots and they survive only by people driving to them and they yeah. create a transportation nightmare for the community. No, it's true, and not to mention all the the runoff from those acres of parking lots. And yeah. I ride my bike all around Brooklyn myself, so... Uh, oh, you I'm, do? Yeah, what kind of bike do you have? Oh, just a beat-up old bike I've had for a while. Those are really cachet these days, the old beat-up uh, bikes. City. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, uh, so the local businesses, supporting local business, they're going to pour more of their profits back into the community, like sponsoring the soccer team or a concert, things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they've done studies, and local businesses tend to support local charities more. They advertise locally, so they support a thriving independent media, which is becoming more and more important these days with the uh, corporate control of media. Um, so they, they do add a lot, you know, and beyond that, beyond the economics, they, they contribute to the character and the personality of our neighborhoods and our towns, and they make our places more desirable to live. And to your point about bike riding and bike paths, I mean, those sort of neighborhoods are very desirable. The, you know, dense mixed use sort of downtown model versus the spread out sprawl. Um, those sort of areas keep their value better, their real estate values better. Um, they generate more tax revenue per square. I don't know if it's per square foot or acre, but um, so there's a lot of reasons, you know, why we we want these types of companies, um, and we want an independent and a d- diverse business space. That makes intuitive sense too, doesn't it? I mean, that's where I want to go visit those kind of communities. That's where I want to live. Yeah, yeah, sure. Now, I have a sense that Loca Vesting, the subtitled The Revolution in Local Investing and How to Profit from It, is going to appeal to my fellow angel investors because I see a trend. It's called impact investing. And I think in part it's due to our age. Many angel investors are quite mature. And I think as we age, we start to think about leaving the world in a better condition than the way we found it. And so investing in startups that have some kind of a potential to, uh, you know, make an impact. How does locavesting and impact investing go together, Amy? I think locavesting is the ideal form of impact investing. I mean, you know, where better to see your impact the, the impact of your money than, you know, right in your own backyard. And, yes, you're contributing to, you know, the type of world you want to live in. You're, you're supporting a thriving downtown Main Street um, and, you know, and all that flows from that. And you're, you're creating a strong, resilient local economy, which also helps the national economy. Right. Helping the prosperity of your neighbors. Yeah, yeah. How about your background, Amy? How did you get to be such an expert on so many facets of uh, investing? 
A lot of research. Um, <laughs> now, well, I, I'm a longtime um, business journalist. I worked at um, Business Week uh, magazine for years covering high tech. So I also covered a lot of venture capital and startups in the dot-com era. Um, I've also written quite a bit um, for the New York Times, a lot about green business and sustainable business. And I've also written a lot about food. Um, so. Yeah. All of these things kind of come together in this book. Yeah, I get that, yeah. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, it sort of, you know, flowed first from the local food movement, but it's, you know, much broader than that. And it, it really is sort of a confluence of all the things that I've been writing about for the past uh, 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. Well, Amy, I've been delighted to make contact with you. I knew the minute I started reading the book, I wanted to get you on the show. And I think my my listeners, my fellow angel investors will enjoy Locavesting, the revolution in local investing and how to profit from it. If John Houston is listening and he reads it, he would add this to his list of books that makes his head hurt. And I hope it does for you too. Well, Amy, I've enjoyed your book very much, and I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Frank. Alrighty, bye-bye. Okay, take care. Well, I'm back from my 436-mile Erie Canal bike ride. It was a 10-day trip for me. I got there one day ahead of my bike riding companion, Kent Eisenberg. He and I have known each other since high school. We both just started riding bikes again, me two years ago, him just this past year. Riding the Erie Canal was a great first tour, we felt. We chronicled our adventures. You can find write-ups of the quagmires of mud that we encountered, all the little surprises and adventures riding the Erie Canal on the blog. So visit cdmcyclist.com. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks so much for listening. Good day.